Hi, this is 10 Minutes to Better Patient Communication from Health Communication Partners. I'm Dr. Anne-Marie Liebel. Earlier this week, I was in New York City, and when I was there, I was talking to a business leader who was very serious about employers' responsibility to support mental health as part of workplace wellness. I told her I agreed with her and that I was especially interested in the terminology used around mental health, how it shows up in policies, and also how we talk about it. This reminded me of a tweet I'd seen months ago from Canada's Dr. Javid Sakara about terminology and mental health. He wrote, Next time someone says mental health, what if we took out mental and just said health? As a literacy and language person, I'm a fan of this way of thinking about the language we use. So this episode is about some steps you can take today to help you be more aware of the terminology you use around mental health. Welcome to 10 Minutes to Better Patient Communication with Dr. Anne-Marie Liebel. Providing you with tips and strategies you can use to improve your patient engagement. I want to remind you about Addressing Implicit Bias, the audiobook bundle that I made up for you of an audiobook, an ebook, and lots of supplementary materials to help you address unconscious or implicit bias in your language, no matter your specialization, no matter your patient population. It's unfussy. It's conversational. I made it for you. And you'll be supporting your own learning in this podcast series. So when I'm teaching a course or giving a workshop, I'm a big fan of removing obstacles. This can take different forms. For instance, say your goal is for your organization to have better representation from different groups at its regular meetings. I've written before about how changing the time or the location of these meetings can remove an obstacle to participation. Now, in the case of mental health, if the goal is shifting the tide on the stigma around mental illness, it seems one obstacle in the way could be the words we use. If you're a provider, you may be using words unintentionally that suggest or reinforce negative attitudes or assumptions toward patients, clients, or families, toward treatment, or toward the nature of mental health. And you may be doing this without knowing it. Time for some examples from research. Stigma may be at their most harmful when they exist within patients toward themselves. As I see it, disrupting the process of anyone internalizing stereotypes is one of the implied purposes behind any research on stigma in mental health. And of course, I have links to all of these studies in the show transcripts. Several recent studies analyze specific language use in relation to mental health stigma. Now, I'll use these studies as illustrations of different ways that it's possible to step back and analyze language in use in everyday contexts, specifically in video games and in print media. And then I'll relate this to how providers can take a look at their own words and phrases around mental health. So this first study is called Gaming with Stigma, Analysis of Messages about Mental Illnesses in Video Games. The authors study video game playing, quote, as a daily activity for many youths that replaces other media forms, such as television. It serves as an important source of knowledge and can potentially impact their attitudes and behaviors, end quote. 
The researchers intentionally based their keyword search on what we might consider stereotypical terms for mental illness, using words such as asylum, insane, crazy, mental, and psycho. The researchers found that, quote, the majority of the games we reviewed, 97% or 97 out of 100, portrayed mental illness in negative, misleading, and problematic ways, associating it with violence, fear, insanity, hopelessness, etc., end quote. Overall, many game elements, quote, perpetuated well-known stereotypes and prejudices, end quote. Now, I'm not suggesting anyone here is using terms in their practice like these researchers used in their study. Language is not always so blatant as the keywords from the video game research. Another recent study, this time in UK media, provides a helpful example. In this study, which was a linguistic analysis, the researchers, quote, explored the language used in popular national newspapers when writing about schizophrenia and considered how this may have contributed to the processes of stigmatization towards people with this diagnosis, end quote. Whereas the video game study focused on overtly negative language and its ability to contribute to stigma, this study found that, quote, while the press has largely avoided the use of words that press guidance has steered them away from, such as schizo and psycho, they still use a range of graphic language to present people with the diagnosis of schizophrenia as frighteningly other and as prone to violence, end quote. This range of graphic language nonetheless may contribute to stigma, as the researchers conclude. There are even subtler ways that language can signal negative attitudes. I've written and podcasted before about the subtle harms done by microaggressions. An important takeaway from this body of research is that microaggressions can be uttered by any of us aimed at those we love. The same may be said in the case of mental health stigma. I have citations to a study that shows stigma are reproduced and maintained even between romantic partners. That is to say, you don't have to hold negative views of mental illness or of people with mental illness to be using terminology with negative associations. What might this have to do with providers? It's possible that part of the challenge lies in how hard it is to notice the words and phrases we're actually using versus what we think we're saying. This is partly because of the ways we use words and phrases in real life, whether in a personal or a professional context. More often than you might think, we tend to be on an autopilot of sorts when it comes to our talk. We use the words and phrases we're used to to using, and those used by the people around us. Specific bits of language, words and phrases, work their ways into and through our various professional and personal contexts, and then they come out of our mouths, and they land in our policies. Beneath the surface of our words are particular configurations of values, ideals, beliefs, and priorities. And even as well-intentioned people, we might be saying things we consciously disavow. 
This has been my professional and personal experience for more than 20 years now, and it's the journey of a lifetime. So I'm inviting you to look beneath the surface. Being aware of, catching, and then replacing language can help your words flow from your values. As I've said before, since language is powerful enough to contribute to health disparities, I suggest it's powerful enough to reduce them. Now, I'll also assert that no one, including me, can empower you to respond appropriately to the myriad differences among attitudes toward health, mental and otherwise, that you'll encounter across your whole professional career. What makes more sense is for you to bring to your practice an awareness of different possible responses or approaches to mental health that might relate to your patients, your students, your research, and your organizational commitments. This awareness can start by allowing yourself to pay attention to your language. I agree with the authors of another study that found, quote, framing can serve as a tool in creating anti-stigma messages. So let's contribute to shifting the tide on the stigma around mental illness. Here's what you can do today. Catch yourself in the act, or maybe recruit a friend's help. Pick one small piece of language to pay attention to. Maybe the way you open a conversation, or the metaphors you frequently use. Or if you're in a policy kind of way, take a look at the specific phrasing in some of your workplace policies. Consider the values implied in your words examples, and explanations. And be ready to make some changes. Then tell your colleagues you're doing this. Also, study the positive in your practice. What have you said that helped? Remember, what you don't say, as well as the response of listening, counts here too. And again, share this with your colleagues. You can interrogate your terms and phrases, as well as the assumptions beneath them. Then it's down to you to choose the appropriate words and actions for your specific context. Would you like some help on this process? Contact me at healthcommunicationpartners.com. Find me on Twitter at amliebel and on LinkedIn. I'm Dr. Anne-Marie Liebel, and this has been 10 Minutes to Better Patient Communication from Health Communication Partners. Thanks for listening to 10 Minutes to Better Patient Communication from Health Communication Partners, LLC. Find us at healthcommunicationpartners.com.